Welcome to the Broken Pie Chart Podcast, episode 238. I think it's 238. With me, my semi-permanent co-host, more permanent than semi of late, is Jay Pastricelli, CEO of Zega Financial. Jay, welcome back. Another week. Thank you, Derek. Glad to be back. Happy to have an, a nice in-depth discussion about some very interesting topics. You know, so I, I almost like to, sometimes during September, end of August, like there's like this little lull of information. I think you've uh, you've done a great job of putting the topics together today for us. Well, we've got to touch on, uh, and I'm going to hold off on this for a bit because I want to touch on some other things before we get to zero date, zero DTE or days to expiration options. Yeah, Jay, we got more stuff on it. SIBO uh, has some data out. I think it's good we go through it and we can talk about that. But you know, one of the things um, we keep hearing about is rising cost of, let's say, mortgages and the increased, you know, your average payment is going up and up. But there is a, who is this from? Charlie Bellello on Twitter had posted this. And it's the distribution of U.S. mortgages by interest rate. And I guess this is provided by Black Knight. I'll try and source everyone I can here, Jay. I'm giving everyone credit. It's not my graph. That's good. No, it's good. You, you, you. You, you share the source, you keep the credit around, That's right. it's not your info, it's good. It's good And then if there's a mistake, it's not our fault, it's their fault. So yeah. below 3%, though, Jay, 25% of the, uh, the outstanding mortgages have a rate below 3%, 36%, 3 to 4%, let's say, 20%, 4 to 5%, 9%, 5 to 6%. So 7% and higher, which is where the 30-year is today, only 3% of outstanding mortgages are there. And I'll just give the other numbers since I gave them all 6%, 6 to 7%. So, Jay, what this tells me is the higher mortgage rates are not really impacting a very high percentage of the, the U.S. population that has a mortgage. A lot of people don't have mortgages. It's paid off or they just, they're a cash investor or something like that. And it also would tell me that if you have a 3% mortgage, why would you move unless you had to? So I don't know, Jay. I mean, I think we touched on this before. To me, this speaks to the lower inventory and there's lower supply. Sometimes prices are you know, squeezed a little bit higher. I don't know what's going to happen in the, in the mortgage market. But I think this says that the consumer so far may be a little insulated from higher rates. What do you think, Jay? Well, look, I mean, eventually uh, this will filter through, right? I mean, uh, some people move, right? People have to sell houses for whatever life brings them. Uh, you know, I think this will start to filter itself. I have a client that uh, is just in the process of buying a property and uh, it's a pretty large property. He's getting a jumbo loan. Uh, so we talked through that and he's coming in at like, you know, in that seven plus range. And he was, you know, his question was, well, should I just, is it better for me to take out my money and pay cash? for this property, right? Or is it better for me to, you know, lock in the 8%, I think he was around eight, lock in the eight and then maybe refinance in three years. And, you know, my answer to him was like, look, you got to think about the money you're leaving in the market, that's going to make you X percent. And then what you're potentially paying off is going to be, you know, it's fairly steep. And so my, my guidance to him was like, yes, you probably get to refinance. And I said, don't count on it before five years, right? If you're going to see a low rate, but that's 
not me making any prediction, but I just wanted to prepare him that if he thinks next year uh, mortgages are going to be 5%, I think he's probably going to be mistaken about that, right? So don't count on that. So my the general advice was I just, you know, talked to him about like, you got to have a thesis about the market and then you got to have an idea of timing on when you're going to refinance and then to do that math. And, you know, where he where it shook out was he just decided to take a much smaller loan and put a bigger, bigger chunk down. So he's kind of he kind of cut the middle. Like it's one of those things right? he did half, which is something that we talk about doing all the time. I'll do half. Sure about it. I'll do half. Just do half. <laughs> yeah. So it's, you can't you're half right, half wrong all the time. So you can never really blow it. Uh, so, you know, so I think I think that's happening, Derek, where folks that want to. Uh, you know, purchase property and and have to take a mortgage are probably grabbing uh, cash from elsewhere uh, to, you know, to, uh, you know, turn around and uh, use it to have a lower, uh, uh, you know, a lower payment, but still having some sort of a payment, right? Like, is there, I know the math isn't linear here, but right, is there, if you put down, you know, 50% instead of 20%, your monthly rate obviously will be lower, that you're going to pay on that, but you've given up some of the upside on the, you know, what you might've done with that market. By the way, that could go down, right? Like you invest in the market, it could go down. So yeah, I did like this. I just, it seems to me that this is early innings still. And I think this ends up flattening out where you start to see the five to six, six to seven start to uh, increase. But right now you want to get a 30 year, you're in that seven plus range. That's all there is to it. By the way, Jay, I I won't do it on this this episode. Maybe I'll do it on one where you're you're traveling or you're out. But somebody sent me this uh, bunch of YouTube videos, and I made the mistake of watching it. It's this velocity banking, where they're telling people to take a, a variable, higher interest, simple interest loan to start chunking down your mortgage. And I put some numbers in a spreadsheet. Anyway, I'll I'll save it for when I do the episode. But I, I think it's not great. It's not great. Let's, I mean, uh, all right, let me debunk that another time. That would be a good episode. Yeah, debunk velocity banking another time. Gotcha. Wait, you still agree I should stop getting, you know, 0.1% in my checking account at Chase, right? You agree that I'm still, I don't, you you should have been on the phone after last episode. Uh, I don't know why you weren't. So, (laughs) you know, it's going back to him. I mean, but you know, I don't want to spend too much time on this. We we talked about this last week. I'll link to it in the show notes. But I, it's telling me if they can offer that little of amount, people are either don't want to move because all their billing, their bill pay and everything is hooked up, their direct deposit. Sure. Yeah. There's like these switching costs and, and it, it's not necessarily monetary cost. Their opportunity cost is what they're losing. But yeah, I mean, you know, you got to rearrange stuff and maybe they think, but anyway, you're getting nothing. You're getting nothing over there. So, and Jay, as we, yeah, let's talk about inflation. Inflation ticked up a little bit. And I think both core CPI and PPI, uh, producer price index, ticked up. We've been, we were on this a little bit early and we said, you know, crude oil is getting close to 90. And we know that oil and hence gasoline and gas prices are one of the inputs for CPI. Of course, core excludes food and energy. Jay, this is from Bank of America. Uh, they put out a chart that said oil price was at a 10-month high. I don't know when this was created, but uh, a 10-month high, while the 
U.S. crude inventories at a 40-year low, and that's days of supply, including the SPR, Strategic Petroleum Reserve. So 40 years, Jay, this goes back to all the way back to 82. This is lower than it was uh, back in, I'd say, 81, 82. So, I mean, supply and demand, right? Or, you know, low inventory and people demand it, you think prices go higher. This seems to be economics 101. Uh, yep. And and this this is not a trend that's flattening, right? This is a pretty, you know, pretty steep down move uh when when you look at the inventory. So I don't I don't uh you know, again, you never know the way that that is gonna get uh they're gonna, you know, go back and refill it, but they're clearly adding supply, uh they're reducing their supply, which you assume is because they're adding supply to the market, yet oil prices are still going up. So this is one of those things that when uh, that really needs to get uh, backfilled the strategic petroleum reserve. Uh, you should expect it just a, a disproportionate raise in you know right, raise in the oil price at that time. I mean, yeah, this is. I, I don't wanna, I don't wanna use the term ticking time bomb, but this is something that's coming, uh, and at some point we'll have to you know we'll have to crack, and uh, you'll start to see a you know a notable rise. Now I don't know you know the market's a forward looking vehicle, Derek. It's hard to know. How much of what's going on day to day is based on forward-looking values, but it's a commodity that trades every day. Um, people aren't paying, you know, one year down the road prices; they're paying today's prices. And so, I think it's uh, I, I I think it's been great that this has been pointed out multiple times on this podcast. I do not think it'll be the last time we hear about it. No, probably not. And when people ask me, "Hey, what could cause CPI inflation uh, to start to tick up?" I said, "Well." If we get a reversal on oil, and so far we've had a reversal on oil. If you look at, uh, somebody posted a, a thing on Twitter, increases over the last three years. So we're in September right now. This brings it from September of 20. And if you look at the CPI fuel oil, it's up 68%. CPI gasoline up 73%. Now, I'd have to think back to when oil, you know, that goes back to the, I don't want to say the, the C word, because I don't want to get the blue thing on on Spotify. But, you know, during that period when people weren't sort of out and about as much, uh, everyone knows can what you say the, Can you say the P word? I don't know if we can say that one either. I don't, I don't know what we can say. We get, <laughs> we get the, the Rogan treatment. That so, period of 2020 when some folks got sick, oh, that period? Yeah, 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 that one. Okay. So okay. This, this is, I don't want to, these aren't cherry picked. I'm not saying that, but it's, you know, it's all math. Um, but actual home price is up 40%. So think about this. This in, in three years, CPI used cars up 32%, actual rents up 23%, electricity up 24%. Anyway, I think, you know, inflation is one of those things where even if the rate of increase slows down, everything is already embedded. And inflation never really goes down. So you could change the rate of increase. Like, let's say we just went up 2% every every year for the next five years. It's still off a higher base. And that's a pretty big increase in three years, Jay. Uh, yeah, these numbers are kind of staggering, right? Like the a- actual home price is up 40% over three years. It's a pretty big pop. Now, listen, everybody that owns a home is happy that their value of their home has gone up. But again, wait till they have to go buy another one, right? So it's it's all it's all relative here. Um, the you know the thing about this with healthcare Medicare cost only being up four percent kind of surprising 
to me, right? Like, how have the events of the last three years not pressed medical care even higher, right? Uh, you know, just digest that one, Derek. Like, if you if you went through what you went through during that time period, mm-hmm. uh, which was a medical emergency, only up 4%? Yeah. Seems, seems strange to me, right? Uh, but anyway, yeah, cars up 20. Interesting. Rents up 23. Yep. I gotcha. This things are up and they don't go. It's deflation is not something that is really good either. Right. There's all sorts of problems that come along with that. So if everyone's like, Oh, I'm just waiting for it to go back. Getting back can be pretty damaging. I don't know if you want to get into that depth. Maybe we don't have to, but you know, deflationary periods typically are much, much worse in my opinion. Yeah. The, the five second, the quick example is, you know, 1929, we never really have extended periods of deflation unless something like the Great Depression, when when prices just kept going down, down and down. I mean, it's, it's very rare to have a year over year. Uh, but yeah, certainly the medical one is interesting too. I hadn't thought of that, but I'm thinking about it yeah. now. And maybe, yeah, I don't know. Do you know though that I was thinking about this the other day, somebody asked me a question whether the inflation now, you know, actually, I think the comment was, thankfully, inflation wasn't as bad as it was in the 70s. And my comment was, we measured it different in the 70s. If we measured it the same way today as we did in the 70s, I'll bet you it would be as high or higher. Uh, Larry Summers has a paper kind of talking about this. I haven't read it yet. I'll have to get to it. But, you know, in the 70s, they did, there was, they they looked at things like, uh, I think they might have looked at mortgage rates, actual home prices. You know, right now it's that owner's equivalent rent and stuff. I don't want to get too detailed in this, but the the inflation was pretty bad. I mean, that's the point, Jay. That's the takeaway, and it was probably as bad as the seventies. Yep. When you when you look at these numbers, you're talking about the three year change, right? You're, you're they're absolutely, in my opinion, they're just as bad, right? And but yet, you know, uh, well, you know, forget it. I was going to go into cause and forget it. Let's not go into that. We've hit on that multiple, multiple times. Yep. Yep. Uh, just a two second thing. Uh, you know, I like to look at Japan here and again, 10 year government bond yields in Japan, they are highest level since 2014, 0.72%. What they're doing is they're trying to do yield curve control. And so basically they're saying the central bank of Japan is like, Hey, we'll let the 10 year yield go up so much. Uh, but then if it goes there or breaks through that, we'll start to buy bonds. So there's sort of a, a ceiling. I think, I could be wrong, but I think they're going to let it float up to 1% now. But it might be 0.75, might be uh, you know three quarters of a percent. But um, it's just something to watch. Yeah, you know, Japan does a lot of controls on their currency and their bonds, right, independently. And, uh, you know, the, the yen versus the dollar is an interesting dynamic. And... Uh, you know, because the, the so a few things about the yen, right? What what everybody doesn't always understand is that when things get bad, the yen goes up in value, and it's mostly because it's a safe haven for uh, you know Japanese investors. And when they sell their let's say U.S. securities, everything settles for them in yen, and you start to see the yen go up because then there's a demand. So there's almost this they almost call it a flight to safety that when risk assets are coming off. The investing community of Japan, which is, you know, I think pretty disproportionately represented by their population, uh, ends up, you know, having a push higher 
on the value of the yen. And so there's a lot of interesting dynamics when it comes to the currency and the bonds. So in America, we, we typically would say, right, that um, uh, when yields go higher, the U.S. Treasury is in more of demand. And since you can't buy treasuries and foreign currencies, you have to buy dollars first. So the dollar can rise along with those interest rates. Something similar also happens uh, in Japan. And while I'm only touching on the surface because I only have just enough information to be uh, knowledge to be dangerous with it, I, I'm thinking through this, Derek, how this leads to the relationships so of the rising rates in Japan and the rising value of the yen, what the impact is on the U.S. dollar, and how does that affect our markets? Well, I think it really is uh, part of another discussion, and it's the dollar, uh, the index. I mean, there, there's the dollar index, which is very Eurocentric, and it does have the yen in there. But then there's actually a nominal broad U.S. dollar index that is trade-weighted. And so that one is going to be roughly, I don't know, I'd, I'd have to pull up the numbers, but something like 13% is the Mexican peso here. I'll pull up the numbers as we're talking. That was my attempt at a segue, Derek. I knew we were going to talk about currency, so I tried to take the Japanese yen to the currency conversation. They are all linked, obviously. Yeah, no, it is. Japan, by the way, in, in the nominal broad, uh, which used to be the trade-weighted, uh, I think, I don't know, the New York Fed discontinued it. It's about 5.5% as the Japanese yen. So if you look at that, it's it was falling. I mean, we know it crested and it was falling. It's actually the U.S. dollar started to pick up again, right? And there's some implications for not only for trade but also for U.S. equities. When you sell something, so here here's the example we we'll use, Jay. The iPhone 15 is coming out. I know you're an iPhone hater. You're an Android person. I mean, hater's a strong word. I mean, that's 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 a strong feeling. It's just not my preference. I don't like the, it's just, it's a little more clunky, the operating system. It's a better camera. It's, it's probably, I, I know it's a better camera, uh, the Google Pixel, but yeah. I don't know. I'm just, yeah, I love my camera. Anyway, so it's coming out. There's a, a 15 Pro Max and somebody uh, took some data from Apple and they created this chart on Twitter. I, I don't know who this is. Um, E-E-A-G-L-I, not familiar with this group. But what they did was they said, okay, it's $1,199 US if you want to buy the, the 15 Pro Max, the, the top of the line uh, Pro model. And I think it's like 128 or 250 gigabits of memory. And then what they did was they said, you know, we mentioned Japan. So if you want to buy the iPhone in Japan, when you do the currency conversion, it doesn't cost $1,199, it costs $1,291. I'm not going to read all these off, but there's an interesting one. Uh, Brazil, low converted from local currency, is goes from $1,199 up to $2,200. Do the conversion. I'm not sure if they have tariffs in here. Turkey, $2,849. So Jay, like you almost, if you lived in Turkey, uh, you could, if you could find a flight that's cheap enough, you could fly here, buy your iPhone and then fly back, and you'd still be better off than just buying it there. But I bring this up because when the dollar gets stronger, our goods get pricier around the world when you do the conversion, right? Yes, that's right. And so, uh, so like, yeah, I mean, the, the thing is, right, does 
I th- this is more of a prof- Derek the professor question, right? The price point use it doesn't fluctuate based on the value of the dollar in those countries. Just like here, right? If it's going to be eleven ninety nine in the U.S., I don't know how many euros it's going to be in France to buy the iPhone, right? Like they have a number there too, right? And let's just say their number was uh, let's say it's a thousand well, euros. France's France's fifteen eighty three, so. So, so they, so this is taking the actual price it's listed for, and then converting it into dollars. Is that what this report is showing, or is it uh, if you, you know, the value of eleven hundred dollars in France? No, it's 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 the price in U.S. dollars, and then if you were to price it in U.S. dollars and then do the conversion in France. Got it. So you take the France price and you convert it and there you go. Well, then in that case, this is absolutely like because uh, I thought it was the other way around, like their price and then converted. So, yeah, look, I mean, uh, the, this, this. So would you say this is better for Apple earnings, right, when they could sell iPhones? No, no, no. Because when you look at it, so any company that has overseas sales, a weaker dollar increases the value. Because remember, when you sell something in euros, it gets uh, converted back to U.S. dollars. So imagine you had something, um, imagine it was one-to-one, euro and, and U.S. dollar. Great. You sell something for 100 euro, it goes on your books as a, as a revenue of $100, and then, you know, let's say your, your margin's 50%, so then $50 profit. But now, if it's two-to-one, the dollar is stronger. Now it takes two euros to get one dollar, you're still selling it for that 100 euro price, but now when you convert it back, you're only getting $50 of revenue and you're only getting $25 of net profit. So your revenue and your profits go down. And we saw this, Jay, uh, in especially last year when the dollar was higher. I think Microsoft said, you know, it was like a 9% hit to revenue and earnings one of the quarters. So I, it it matters. It matters to multinational companies. They would rather the dollar be down. Right. That's that's you. That's exactly right. You'd rather the dollar be down because the international conversion benefits you. Yeah. Uh, so when, when you yeah. So that that's you know what I was asking. So when you look at this chart and all of a sudden you got a strong dollar, it doesn't and you know that costs more for these iPhones in other countries. It doesn't actually necessarily benefit Apple. Right. Apple would prefer a weaker dollar. Uh, uh, overall, for the international sales in, in, in the national, yeah, in the US, it doesn't matter. Yeah, gotcha. I do, I do think it's funny if you get a thousand dollar flight from Turkey to the United States, buy your iPhone probably in the airport, and then get right back on the plane <laughs> and go home. Free, right? Yeah, you do it duty money. free. Don't pay tax, yeah. right? So, yeah, I don't know if they have them in duty free shops. Somebody can email us uh, and, and let us know. Well, Derek, I know you can buy iPhones in the in the in the airport. Plenty of people. All right, use well, their maybe. Phone Somebody email me. Let me know if you can buy an iPhone in a duty free shop. Derek.moore at ZegaFinancial.com. All right. So um, let's go to this. And then I want to I want to get to the zero DTE options stuff. Some really interesting data from the CBOE, Chicago Board of Options Exchange. But last thing I'll mention is I went back and I looked. We talked about it a number of times, this whole 94, 95. But I, I pulled up a graph, and of course the listeners can't see this, but if you look at, you know, end of 94, 95, uh, the three-month U.S. Treasury, which is a good proxy for the risk-free rate, very, you know, correlated to the Fed funds rate to a, a high degree, 
it was above 5%. And if we chart something like, uh, you know, the total market, like a Wilshire 5,000, why the Wilshire 5,000? I don't know. It was just easy to pull in this, this Fed chart I pulled. And you can see that, you know, stocks can go up when yields are higher. And the weird thing about this, like you look at how yields fell in the late 80s into the 90 recession, yields fell after the March 2020 tech, you know, collapse. Everyone's rooting for yields to go down. But if yields go down, doesn't that imply that there's trouble? And also, if stocks can go up and and even if if rates are above 5%, like, I don't know if we should fear these these high rates that much. You actually, because if rates go down, it tells you there's a, there's a trouble in, in the equity markets. Well, I mean, that's the, the point of lowering rates, right, is to help stimulate the economy, right? So you wouldn't stimulate an economy that doesn't need stimulating unless maybe it's, all right, I'm going to not go into the cause of inflation again, Derek. I'm just going to be quiet about that. So, um I think the interesting thing here, like you're saying, like don't be afraid of 5% rates. Markets can absolutely appreciate in a 5% rate environment, even on the short end of the curve, right? And, uh, you know, after the, you know, when, I lo- when I'm looking at this data, right, from let's, let's just look at a period of like 95 all the way through to, like you said, 2001, like rates were high, right? And that, when I say high, they were four to six, right? They oscillated in that four to six range. And the market appreciated, you know, fairly consistently. Yes, we got our normal bumps in the road, but it was a period of appreciation. So they, they're not necessarily going to be, uh, it doesn't have to necessarily mean it's restrictive. Then your whole point about, hey, you know, dropping rates is what we should be hoping for. Uh, you're right. You, you probably have trouble first, right? So maybe, you know, you hope for the lower rates when things look bad. Today, you know. The, the 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 market seems to be digesting and accepting rates in the you know the five plus range. I just it's one of those things where everyone is is saying everyone believes the Fed is going to lower rates, and my answer is always why? Why do they need to do it unless there's trouble? And if they're going to do it if there's trouble, why do you want trouble? I mean, they would love a world where they keep rates at five percent. Maybe the ten year goes back to six and a half percent. And inflation is a steady, nice 2% a year. Like the Fed would call, would, would put up a sign, put up, put up balloons and have a party if that happened, right? I mean, that's when you look at all their long-term projections, it's what they're hoping for to occur, right? That's always, uh, that's always what, what it looks like. I, I would tell you that when I'm looking at the futures right now, like the, sorry, the, uh, yeah, the Fed funds futures, Right. And, you know, the chance of a rate cut, you know, it's like May 2024, you know, there's a there's a chance there. But looks like rates are going to be pretty solid for a while in this range. So the most likely thing is that they don't change. The chance of the November cut looks to be lower. Remember, at one point we saw that kind of just right. peak above to be the most likely. Uh, now that's only 34 percent, 65 percent is that they will stay the same at this five and a half to five and a quarter to five and a half range. Um, yeah, like, look, the, the way the market is pricing this out is while everybody, you know, there might be some thoughts there, the market is not pricing out the dip until 2024. And usually, you know, it's related to some sort of a pullback uh, in the economy. And this just keeps getting pushed out, pushed out, pushed out. 
you know, I wonder if um, I think there's a way to check historically, you know, what this looked like in the past. And, uh, you, you know, I, I guess we could do a little more research on this versus uh, um, you. You can. Yeah, you just don't do it today, but you can pl- you pull up the chart of the implied forward yield. Uh, should be a, a historical chart. That that'd be the way to do it. We can do that maybe at some point. Yeah, it's just the 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 time of the rate decrease keeps getting kicked out every month. That we don't you know have the recession fear is another month or another quarter that the uh, or another Fed meeting that the expectation of lower rates gets pushed out. So now we're out to May, and you could see that in in the SOFR futures. So SOFR, which is the secured overnight funding rate, it's the replacement for LIBOR. There's a one-month SOFR, there's a three-month SOFR, and you know you can look right now at the September of 2024 SOFR future, and you can imply the rate by taking 100 minus the price. And if you just pull up a chart of that, you'd see how that has changed over time, and that's, that's more of the long term. But all right. Yeah, no, that's – everyone's been wrong on rates. I've been saying – I mean – it's just the reality. Everyone's been wrong. Everyone thought a recession was coming. It hasn't come. Everyone said the Fed was going to cut. They haven't cut. Everyone said the, the Fed wasn't going to raise past 3%. They they raised past 3%. So like, it's almost not even, it's, it's for sport. It's for fun for these people to talk about it on TV, but it's clear there's, there's really no long-term value in it. All right. Yeah. But the, like, look, there's, there's real decisions being made about future rate rates. Rates, right? I mean, companies that are thinking about when to rotate their debt, investors when they're thinking about, you know, what kind of a position to take and the duration they're trying to take. Like, it, it's well, you say it's fun, but it really, it does really matter to a lot of the to the way a lot of portfolios are run. It's a it's a great point, but the analysis so far has been been off. Let's just put it that way. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I agree. Right. So we'll say it's fun when everybody's off. So I got you. Like, you know, let's say somebody was like, oh, oh yeah, Fed funds is, is three and a half now. We'll wait to, to sort of issue debt because uh, we know it's going to come back down. And now it's higher. I mean, it's just, or, hey, I'm going to, I don't want to go and buy a house right now because, you know, I'm going to wait till mortgage rates drop. Well, they've, they've made new highs. So it's tough. It's tough. I mean, this is all you're trying to make the best choices you can do an analysis. And um, yeah, I mean, even I was talking to our friends over at State Street and one of the things that they point out, just look at the size of the high yield market. And it's much lower than it was. And part of it is uh, companies aren't needing to necessarily issue right now. They're not needing to necessarily roll their debt. And some of it's you get upgraded out of high yield into, you know, triple B and things like that. So, um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's just, it, it's, uh, I think we're done on this topic. Are we done? <laughs> I don't yeah, know. We're done. We're good. <laughs> Nobody's getting rates right. Zero, Move on. Yeah. Let's go to zero DTE options. Uh, we've talked about these before, you know, them, you love them. Zero DTE is the acronym for days to expiration. The CBOE put out some interesting data here, and I'll kind of go through some of this. There's different pieces here. And let me start here, and then I want to detail. They they actually, Jay, went through one day, and they broke down sort of where the what the net is between people and buying and selling these. And, and I think their point was, 
you know, the impact to this wasn't necessarily directionally that great. If you look at back in 2016, zero days to expiration, the volume of the market was about 5%. Go to 2023, it's up to 43%. You don't, I'm not going to read off every one of these, but it's been rising. Uh, of course, Jay, you and I have pointed out that most options, I mean, weeklies are a new phenomenon. Dailies are new. So of course, we're going to have more, more options that are doing that. But I want to go, let me go through this. And I think we should, we should get into this a little bit. If I can, uh, if I can page down. So what they did was they looked at, uh, said, and this, this was addressing concerns associated with SPX zero DTE options. So S&P 500 index options. And they looked at June 15th. That day, the, the high of the mark was 4,365. Uh, I'm sorry, the, the high was 4,439. The low was 4,363. So that's a, that's a pretty good spread there. That's, uh, that's like 80 points, something like that. I'm doing my math yeah, in my head. It's a pretty volatile day. Yep, it's pretty wide. Yeah, it's a pretty volatile day. The most active strike was the 4,420 call and the 4,400 put. All right, so... Without going through all these numbers, the, the payoff here is if you look at contracts sold at the strike, contracts bought at the strike, uh, the net bought as a percentage of volume at these strikes was about 2.2% on the calls and 4.8% on the puts, meaning the net. And what that tells you is that, yes, there were more buyers than sellers, to use my favorite term, Jay, but on net, it was sort of even. And, you know, those were the all strikes. If you look at all strikes on June 15th of this year, and that's uh, 1.4% net bought as a, as a percent of total volume, put 0.2% as a percent of total volume. 0.8% was net bought as a percent of total volume. So what this tells us is that when you're looking on net, people are trading these contracts. There were people on both sides. So let me kind of stop there, Jay, and let you come in on this. Okay. So let's, let's, you know, the, the, the net, right. Remember these are zero days till expiration, right? So at the end of the day, right. It, these will, these will expire at 4 PM. Uh, at the end of the day, these options are going to settle for cash. And so I think that the idea here is that these are being used as trading vehicles because, you know, what's the, you know, you're going to settle the cash anyway, right? And so when you get your profit or, you know, you've got, you know, hey, I'm not, this option's not going to make me any money. It's one of those things that you end up, uh, you know, closing out. And so, you know, when I think about the difference, it's, it's a lot of, um, it's probably a lot of churn, right? It's, uh, the fact that, you know, we don't know if the bought and sold are new opening positions. I don't think we know that, right? Because you could sell an option as your opening position, right? Or you can buy an option as your closing position, right? But this just gives you net bought and sold. The the nice thing about those numbers, right? When it's only like, hey, volume is only 1.4 skewed as a net buy, right? Or a 0.2% skew. It tells us that there's, you know, equal volume on both sides of this. Like we have a legitimate you know, market, right? There's, uh, uh, you know, hundreds of thousands, actually 1.3 million contracts traded on that day in the SPX, 
which is a fairly high notional uh, uh, option, uh, right? One SPX is on that day was equal to, I don't know, $443,000, right? And there was a million three of those traded. So it tells you that there's probably a lot of churn that's going on on those notionally. Uh, and to me, I think it's actually a fairly balanced market. Like the fear that zero DTEs are going to cause a market imbalance just doesn't seem to be the case when you look at the buys and the sells. And of course, some of it's opening, some of it's closing. I wish we had that uh, uh, broken down a little bit. But oh, I do. You know, I do. do. That's for later. That's for yeah, later. I know. Hang on. All right. For it. Well, we're gonna, yeah, we're going to get to it. So like, anyway, I just to me, it tells me it's a fairly level market and zero DTEs aren't moving anything, uh, aren't causing kind of a skew one way or another where the options could then impact the underlying uh, uh, equities. I don't, I don't know if we should talk about cash settled on SPX. Maybe that's for a different time, the characteristics of. No, no, no. I want to. I'm glad you brought it up because I was actually going to, that was going to be my little interjection and say, we should talk about that. So there are European style, American style. I'm going to let you do this. Let me set it up. Uh, European style is cash settled. American style is where they can be exercised or you can be assigned at any point up through expiration. Uh, but basically, settlement J is is really different. So let's just think about a, a zero D, DTE option and maybe break down, yeah, I mean, European or, or cash settled versus, yeah. Yeah, so you already kind of gave the cash settled piece in the European style. Uh, you, European means, right, you can only be assigned at expiration. American, you could be assigned early. Anybody that's a call seller or a put seller knows that when you know most of their time has decayed out, they end up getting assigned on those options, right? So uh, that is not the case with the European style or a cash settled. So when a regular standard, you know, if you're an SPY trader uh, and your option settles, uh, uh, sorry, expires where it is in the money, you're going to get delivered stock or be forced to delivered stock. There's a stock transaction associated with that. With cat with a cash settled, it's just the difference between the market close. And the strike price. So on this day that we're talking about, the market closed at 44.26. So if on that day you were long, say, a call at 4,400 and the market closed at 44.26, you would be you would be cash settled out at the gain of $2,600. So that is the difference between the strikes, 4,400 and 44.26 uh, times. Uh, so that difference is 26 times 100. So that's $2,600 per contract. You would just have cash settled in your account. Here you go. Here's cash, right? Uh, and if it goes the other way, you owe cash. It's a debit out of your account, right? So if the market closed, uh, let's say you had a short call at 44.26. Now you're in the negative on the $26. You owe $26, right? So that's the way that that cash settlement works. There's no delivery of stock. And it doesn't happen until 4 p.m. Uh, on the day of expiration. All right, Jay. So let me just go through, let's say it's XYZ, a very popular symbol with us, fake symbol, much like ABC. So let's say you're long one of a 50 strike call of XYZ and the stock is at $51 at expiration at the end of the day. Well, unlike your example, where it's cash settled, in the money a dollar times 100 $100 would go into your account. But hold on, it's not cash settled. What happens is it is automatically exercised into 100 shares of XYZ. And 
Well, you might say, well, okay, well, I had one call anyway representing 100 shares. Now you have overnight risk because you have these shares, let's say, and then you hold them. And then if you want to just sell them the next day to, to realize your profit. And so, Jay, that's sort of the, you know, without getting too elaborate into this, that's one of the benefits of, of let's say, cash settled. You're either owe money or, or you take money at the end of the day, right? Yeah, and you, you know, you know what your status is. You don't have this. Ooh, did I get assigned? And I've got I'm short stock or I'm long stock, and I got this weekend risk, right? That is the beauty about cash settled. It's almost, you know, it's kind of an elegant solution when it comes to investing, uh, because uh, you had your position. You do one trade if you want, and then you know, however it ends is what you made or lost. It's, uh, you know, I I personally think it's a much cleaner way. Like you said, you avoid things like you know, strange assignments and uh, <laughs> taking that stock risk over the weekend. And I say over the weekend because typically stock, you know, the typically American style options expire on a Friday these days, right? I don't know if we have very many, if any, intra-week options yet. I have heard rumors they're coming for some very popular tickers like Apple and Tesla, but uh, maybe let's not get into that. Let's get back to the zero DTE options. Yeah, so I tease that they actually the, the CBOE Chicago Board of Options Exchange um, in the the data we were looking at, they actually broke it down and they have customer um, let's see by strategy and time of day. So this is single legs net bought, and thirty four thousand were bought at nine thirty. Three thousand were bought to close. So you buy to open, more buys to open. And most of these throughout the day were, were sort of buys to, to open. But at the same time, single legs, so single not meaning in a spread, uh, sell to open, okay, about 11,000 at 930, 19,000 sell to close. So if you look at the distribution between bought to open, sold to open, sold to close, bought to close, it's pretty even. And then you get into some spread data too, vertical spreads. Uh, net sold versus net bought. But this actually breaks it down by uh, every half hour, Jay. I, I think you can see this chart as well on. Uh, yeah, it's... absolutely. And, and like, again, it shows there's a fairly, uh, you know, balanced market between buys and sells here, opens and closes. Um, I do think that it's, it is interesting to see that kind of when you look at the spreads, when that happens, the largest amount of spreads, vertical spreads, uh, are opened at, you know, kind of the 930 point, meaning the market generally, it looks like on these zero DTEs on this day that was tested that, uh, you know, this, this, it's a large chunk of these 40,000, you know, vertical spreads, uh, were sold to open at the open, right? So it's, they're kind of harvesting the time, uh, decay that's left, in the one day, but they're doing it in a way that they're limiting the risk. So they're using a vertical spread to do it, right? That's where you sell an option and then buy another one that defines your risk. So uh, it doesn't mean you can't, you know, lose everything you, you invested, but, and you still want to manage your notional, but it just means that it's not like an open-ended, you know, naked option that's getting added into, which we like spreads, right? A lot of our strategies utilize spreads. think it's smart. It's interesting to see that that is the most you know, when, I, when that happens, it happens at the beginning of the day, which makes sense, right? Why would you sell a spread at the end of the day to open 
there's almost no time value left in that. But unless, you know, that's the way you want to do a directional play, I guess. Yeah. And this isn't new that people are are doing this. They used to do it on the one day a month that was a zero DTE. And some people would be like, oh, yeah, I'm going to take sell a spread or I'm going to sell something, get a little premium, cash settled, or I'm going to buy something. I, I don't know. I knew a guy one, this is years ago. He, and, I, and please do not do this, dude. I'm like, I'm not, I'm really telling you, don't do this. Uh, you were better off donating your money to charity. But he used to buy, like with two minutes left, he would buy these, um, a little bit out of the money calls that were pretty cheap because they're cheap because they're out of the money and there's like two minutes left. But the indexes keep trading, you know, for another 15 minutes. And his theory was if it ever popped in that last, you know, that 15 minutes afterwards, he'd be raking in. And I think he lost uh, all the time, but there's just any number of reasons why people buy. Don't do that. Right. I mean, you know, Jay and I are always like, Hey, we, we buy the market. Primarily we do, we buy and we hedge. We're not suggesting you do this, but no, look, you want to do that. You might as well, you know, spend the, spend the entertainment and money in Vegas instead of doing it from your basement or do, or do city banking. One one of those. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Yeah, no, this data is really interesting. And, and yeah. you know, I don't know where else you wanted to go with the data on this, but this, these are becoming more and more popular, more and more topics of, uh, uh, of discussion. Actually, just, you know, uh, there's, there's now, you know, ETFs that use zero day to expiration options, right? Without going into too much detail, we're familiar with those. I think it's, it's you know, this is something that, um, you know, we'll, we'll end up, continuing to get uh, interesting uh, attention. But if you're investing for the long term, these really don't have a big place in your portfolio unless there's someone who's running a very regimented strategy with them. Like, you know, you should be trading. I mean, I shouldn't say shouldn't, but, you know, you it's it's hard, right, to, to end up, you know, being profitable over the long term uh, when you're, you know, trading one day options every day, right? I mean, now you, it's your day trading and that's okay. That's, you know, it should be p- fine for part of your portfolio. Generally speaking, Derek and I are more, it's fine with your play money. You should have the majority of your money and stuff that's going to grow over time, take advantage of market trends, like markets tend to go high over time, things like that. Right. Uh, so, but I think we find it fascinating that there's so much media attention around this, right? Like we, we always knew triple witching and quadruple witching days were, going to have the most attention uh, uh, when it comes to the options market. It's why it's always such a busy day uh, in the pits. So, you know, now you get the chance to have that more regularly. That's all. I wonder if over time, instead of using futures, now I'm thinking about the market makers or, or really big institutions, would they switch from futures to zero DT options? Um, because, you know, in theory, the premium is, is much lower. I don't, it's just an interesting thought because it's, it's more of a direct hedge and how, how their books work. Uh, I don't know. I, I'm just thinking out loud as we're talking. Oh yeah. Um, maybe, maybe, right. Maybe. Right. So a lot of times when we put on option positions, we know the market makers are hedging with futures on the other side. So by that logic, I think you could assume that these are a vehicle to be used for market makers that, you know, uh, are looking for very directional protection. Sure. I could totally see that. The other thing I'll mention too is I'm starting to see a lot of stories. So let me, let me couch this. 
there was a, a story in the Wall Street Journal. I think Jason Jason Zweig did it. He's a great writer, fantastic writer, and he puts out really good content. Um, and it, and it was they picked uh, you know a few people as examples, and they talked about how they're trading zero DTE options and they lost some money. And I I just the reason why I bring it up is. Remember, you could do a lot of damage with a butter knife, but if you ask somebody, is the butter knife dangerous? You'd say, well, no, you butter your toast with it, and but you can do things nefariously with it. And I bring this up because it doesn't matter the time frame. There, there's a story about people lost money. And, and it reminds me, um, you know, when, when brokerage firms said, in order to day trade, you have to have X amount of equity in the account. There was a story about how people went and they were trading DAX futures because you didn't have to have that much equity. And then there was a stories about people lost money. The, the people trading, you know, day trading during 2020 and buying meme stocks and lost money. Like there's always ways to use something, I would say, uh, with too much risk. So, you know, these, it, right now it's, I think we'll see stories about this, but these are these are gaining in popularity, and I think used correctly, they they may have an interesting part of of some people's portfolios. I don't know if everybody's, but it it is an interesting instrument, Jay. Yeah, and it's it's something that you're going to have to have the time to do, right? I mean, if, if you're going to do something regularly and have a strategy behind it, great. If it's something you're going to just dabble in, then just know you're dabbling in it and. You know, you're competing against guys that do it all day, guys and gals that do it all day and every day like us. So that's something that, uh, you know, just food for thought. Doesn't mean you won't win sometimes, but, you know, if that's not what you do all day, every day, then it's something that we generally don't recommend you do. If you want to put the time in and learn and do it, great. You know, you and I, Derek, that's how we really got into the business in the first place, something we were passionate about. So you're right. Use it as a, use it, uh, with the appropriate amount of, uh, of risk. And so now I'm done being the uh, quasi-adult in the room. There you go. There you go. All right. So I don't know if this is available anywhere, if, uh, the SIBO report. I'm not sure. But uh, if, if I find the link, I'll certainly put it in the show notes. And I think we'll, this is a, a subject, Jay, we're going to keep talking about. These uh, the zero DTE um, people keep talking about it, so will we, right? If it keeps coming up and we get questions from folks about it and how it really impacts them, absolutely happy to keep talking about it. In a future episode, we'll have to compare the zero DTE VIX to the other VIXs. I think that's ripe for conversation too, and not for today. Oh yeah, I do want to no, get that's, yeah? That's VIX is right up <laughs> <laughs> All right, Jay, let's uh, let's go to uh, some recommendations for the week. Uh, we actually had a listener email in after we were talking about the big short, uh, Darren and Darren's, I haven't seen it yet, but I watched the preview, uh, 99 homes. I guess it shows sort of the homeowner experience back in, you know, 2008, 2009. Uh, so that's, uh, that's a, a listener recommendation. We have listeners now giving recommendations. So that's awesome. So thanks, Darren. I think we should take them on. There's only so many new shows, you know, I could digest I every week. I know. What do you, what do you got this week though, Jay? Anything new? Uh, you know, I, I, uh, I did hear that your, your favorite movie will be, uh, uh, streaming this week. I think Saturday Barbie is now available for streaming. It's for I'm you. not my, for, it's not my favorite. Oh, I, I keep getting that wrong. My apologies. I wonder who I'm it's thinking not, about. Uh, not, so, not, sorry. Not on my list. 
Oh, I'm not gonna okay. watch it. I, listen, I'm going to watch it. I've heard from uh, people that I should watch it. I couldn't bring myself to go to the theater, but I will certainly watch it from the comfort of my couch. Um, no, listen, I don't. I don't really have anything new except uh, looking forward to uh, uh, you know a handful of movies coming out as we we talked about. But Billions continues to be strong for for me to watch. Right, something that I'm always uh, watching, and I have yet to start your Breaking Bad, so I don't have a lot of new stuff for you. By the way, in Billions this week, uh, they they the name of the the title of the episode was the Gulag Gulag Archipelago, and it's a really long book, really long book. But I've read that book, and uh, the writer. What is the book about? So is that your recommendation? uh, No, I have other recommendations. But as you said, Billions, (laughs) I it was called the Gulag Archipelago. No, it's it's uh, somebody who's arrested falsely in, in Russia and then eventually is in prison in the gulags in Siberia, I believe. And but the descriptive writing, I mean, it's it's a it's a haul. It's three volumes. If you buy it on Amazon, I'll, I'll put a link in the show notes. But it's uh, I think it's like 1500 pages if you buy the unabridged version. But I've read it. Got it. All, All right. right. So I was like when they when got, you got this it. Uh, I have. Uh, so I haven't seen it yet, but my wife gave me one, uh, the Johnny Menzel documentary on Netflix. So you remember Johnny Football, Johnny Menzel. Uh, she was telling me about it. So this is her recommendation. So actually, Jay, we have no recommendations. We're relying on other people now. But she said it's worth it. And it's really interesting to see sort of the rise and fall. It's, it's a shame, too, because the guy did have some talent. Um, but that that's her recommendation. And there was, I think she was telling me, there was one where uh, he he was going to fail a drug test and his, his agent was like, you got to fake an injury or something on day two of the combine because that's the day that they <laughs> test apparently. His agent's oh, like, you, I don't know what it is, but you got to figure it out. Like, you, you know, you got a heart scare, health problem, whatever. You need to be, not be there on day two. So I haven't seen that yet, but she was telling me about it. It seems interesting. So that's, uh, I'll throw that out there. Uh, and talking about quarterbacks and, in- and injuries, right? Last week, on uh, the, the, I, th- I think probably the most anticipated quarterback uh, debut, uh, maybe not debut, but maybe new team was Rod- Aaron Rodgers. And that was, you know, if you, if you blinked, you missed his four snaps that he took, I guess, right? So we will see. And is he out for the season now, Derek? Yeah, no, he's done. I was thinking about, uh, I'm not sure if you talked to our, our mutual friend, uh, our former colleague. He's a big Jet fan. I I texted uh, a big Jet fan of mine. I said, "What's worse, Aaron Rodgers last night or Vinny Testaverde getting hurt in the first game when the Jets were supposed to win the Super Bowl? Because they were loaded that year. I think that was '99. Could have been '99. Yeah, um, yeah there were a lot of comparisons made to that uh, that same situation. I heard. Yeah, unfortunate, unfortunate. Never want to see a player get injured and get knocked out. But I think you know a lot of there, there's. I don't, you know, I, I was in New York not so long ago. I don't think I've seen so many, uh, you know, green uh, jerseys uh, in Manhattan. That it's been a long time, and I'm not sure if they'll be there next time that I go in October. No, Jets, Jets are. I feel like Joe Namath made a deal with the devil for that one Super Bowl, and ever since then the Jets have been cursed. That's sort of the, the take. But uh, okay. yeah, no, you're right. It's it's a Giants town. Uh, hey, by the way, lastly, on Johnny Manziel, I remember uh, it was a, it was a gentleman's bet. It was really a handshake bet, so there was no money involved. But I remember when Manziel was drafted, I said, you know, 
when it's all said and done, I'll bet you Tebow winds up with more wins, uh, more, you know, better, more yards passing, more touchdowns passing, more playoff games won, all that stuff. And he said, you're crazy. Uh, just for the record, uh, Johnny Manziel's career as a starter, two and six, Tebow, eight and six. Uh, Tebow was one and one in the playoffs and Tebow had more, wow. more yards passing, more, more touchdown, but man, Johnny football uh, was electric at Texas A&M. I mean, when they beat Auburn that night, the guy had talent. I think I see he lives in Scottsdale now. So maybe, maybe I'll see him around. I'll talk to him about all this. Yes. Yeah. Like I was going to see if he needs a financial advisor, but then I think I've heard some other crazy rumors about it. Maybe we'll watch the documentary first. There you go. All right, Jay. I think we've, uh, we've done what we needed to do this week. Thanks again for coming on for everyone else. Keep sending emails. We love emails. Derek.more at SegaFinancial.com. And Jay, we will talk to you the next time we talk to you. Maybe next week, maybe in two weeks. Who knows? See you, Jay. Okay. Thanks, Derek.